well, we want to welcome Grant Rusco to the podcast, uh, pastor at Summit Church, correct? Yeah. Yeah. How long have you been a pastor there for? Uh, I've been a pastor there for a decade, and I was a youth pastor there for seven years, and then have been the lead pastor of that church for the last three. Okay. So what did the role look like before becoming a lead pastor? Oh, man. Uh, well... Youth pastor was the like the best job in the world, in my opinion. Just got to hang out with young people and uh, just be involved in their lives. Um, and so, yeah, a facet of that was, you know, what we did in the church building. But so much of it was just building relationships and being present with students in the context of their life. And so getting out of the building, being on campuses, uh, hanging out, going to dinner, um, sporting events, or whatever was going on in their life that they would invite me into, uh, that was it. And then also just uh, my wife and I opening up our lives and sharing it with students as well, and so having them in our home. So yeah, it was a it was an interesting job, to say the least. It still is, but the youth pastor thing, there was not like this full tilt job description. It was just like build relationships with students and get to know them and um, I think the challenge with students is uh, they, young people, they want to know that you care about them. And it's just like, well, do you care about me if I'm a good church kid or if I'm not a good church kid? And so that was the kind of that like relentless pursuit of them as they're trying to figure out who they are. And it's messy. And uh, yeah, just kind of engaging in the mess of life with young people. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. What did the transition to lead pastor look like? Did you take on a lot more stress? Or oh, yeah, or? dude. I mean, just the way it went down. Uh, where our church is part of a, a denomination, and uh, it was a denominational election year for the president. And uh, the president that got elected, he vacated his church, obviously, and so uh, they pursued uh, my predecessor, the former pastor of Summit. And uh, I actually was on in the middle of a sabbatical. So every seven years, if you're a full-time pastor at our church, we say, hey, go catch your breath for 10 weeks. And I was in the middle of doing that. I came back, uh, and that whole thing was going down. And I walked into a meeting, and uh, my former boss told me that he accepted a job and felt called by God to go to that other church, and uh, that he was leaving in 30 days, and that I was going to be... Uh, recommended for the new pastoral role at Summit. And I just was, it was horrifying, man. Like, it's a big, yeah. big deal. So, yeah, the the pressure, the stress, like, I mean, being responsible to make decisions that affect a staff of 30-plus and a, a congregation at the time that was, you know, just a little bit north of 3,000 people. And the job that I just described to you, just hanging out with students, uh, I had my learning agility was tested through the roof. And um, it wasn't something that I went to school for. It wasn't something that I was like prepared or even in my mind qualified for. It was, um, are you willing to step into it? And so I didn't know what I know, what I knew, what I didn't know uh, going into it. And it was, uh, and still is at times, uh, a pretty relentless beast to try to uh, lead. So when you're put in a position like that where, you know, you're, you don't feel qualified necessarily, yeah. it sounds like, uh, you know, to move, at least at that point, to move into the head pastor role, Yeah. Um, you have to have a lot of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how can you, like, can you break that down a little bit about, like, what does that look like to have mm-hmm. faith 
and move forward when you feel unqualified and you don't feel, I don't want to like put words in your mouth, not, not good yeah. enough, but just mm. when you, at least you don't feel qualified. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll just speak to it from experience. Um, I, I like from the jump, I was, I mean, I'm a man riddled with insecurity and I think everybody, if they're honest with themselves, we all have insecurities galore. And we do our best to try to like navigate through them. Um, but one of my insecurities was just that. Like, I mean, there's so much expectation that people put on you. So you have external expectations um, and then internal expectations. And so stepping into something that you're not qualified for, I think you have to get honest with yourself um, and the way that I did that was through solitude. I had to be alone. And sometimes, you know, that's a scary thought, like being genuinely alone with yourself for extended periods of time without your phone, without a book, without people. And I just would sit and think um, by myself. And uh, I had to come to terms with the, like some core fears. And one of them was just, you know, my past I have a pretty proven track record of messing stuff up really bad, uh, messing up my own life, messing up other people's lives. And one of the core fears was that I was just going to mess this church up really bad. And so I had to kind of surrender that. I had to surrender it to God, but I also had to accept the probability and the possibility that I could mess it up really bad. And so what does it look like to make, uh, make the right mistakes and learn from them as you go. Um, because I don't think anybody, we wouldn't look at someone else and say, you better not make a mistake the rest of your life. And then we put that pressure on ourselves. And so, um, I don't know, I had to reframe my thinking constructs around failure and how I define it and how I respond to it. So that would be the first form of it was like, I had to get, I had to do some internal work, uh, some soul work in my profession, we would call it. I had to look inward and identify some core fears. And then, um, dude, I, I knew I couldn't do it by myself. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I don't have a, I don't have a resume that says, hey, you should be a pastor of a mega church that's, you know, you know, bursting at the seams and growing like crazy um, in a lot of different ways. So I didn't have, I had nothing to pre-qualify myself and it forced me and, it forced me to be, um, to tap into the collective intelligence of leadership at Summit. Um, there's a lot of really faithful, really smart um, women and men in our church, older than me uh, and younger than me, and some my same age. And so there was this diversity of people that um, really helped me make uh, good decisions, sound decisions. And um, so there was a lot of listening to learn. So, hey, what do you think about this decision? And I have my opinions and my perspective, but I'm going to hold them and I'm going to actually try to discern and listen to what other people are saying. So the, to that question, like the fit, man, how do, you, how do you step into something you don't feel qualified for? Um, I, th I don't think it's either or. It's not just about you or just about the leadership around you. It's both and. And I, I needed like a... Um, a community of people around me because I would have made some pretty dumb decisions like, you know, just in front of me, no question about it. But yeah, those were kind of the, that's kind of the primary swing thought there was I needed good people who 
were loved me enough to stab me in the front when I was dead wrong. You know, when you're, mm-hmm. we can convince ourselves of anything that we're right and rationalize it. And then, oh, all right, you're wrong. Okay, we'll reroute and go this way. But then also like that. And also I want to be clear too, like confronting those core fears wasn't a one-time thing. It's not like you just like slay that yeah, demon or right. tackle that monster and then just move on and you're good with it. That thing, that shadow side creeps all the time. And so I still like will wrestle through messing it up. Am I messing it up? Am I hurting people? Am I making dumb choices? Like, was I not present with that person? Um, and so it's, it's ongoing <laughs> to, to answer that question. It wasn't something I did and I'm done with it. It's something that's continuing. Yeah, and I imagine that pressure is even more when you know you're not just failing yourself or even your family it's your job is so involved with other people Mm -hmm. that your feel of failure it fear of failure is seen in other people's lives Mm -hmm. just how that pressure would be so much greater than just like finances or Mm -hmm. anything else is do you have you kind of mentioned like the people around you who are your support system for that and help you um, I imagine get through some of those shortcomings, mm-hmm. but also support you in that. Have you found that those people are more important than anything else that you can do? Yes, I, I think, I mean, within the context of my faith, um, people are primary, man. And I couldn't, my... I got my wife's voice. Um, I got the organizational leadership at Summit, the voices of those uh, women and men. I also have the congregational voices of the people who aren't on staff but are like actively participating and pouring their lives into helping building something together. And then uh, I think it's also really important to have some, uh, I call them old dead mentors. So people who like they literally may have been dead for hundreds of years, but uh, there's, there's wisdom, like timeless wisdom to be gained from people, um, not just in our cultural context. I mean, you can, in the church, you go read some like desert fathers or desert mothers, like around 300 BC. And some of the stuff that they wrote, it travels really well and it's as relevant today. So, um, and then at the same time, uh, so you're kind of working in concentric circles out, like who's right here with me, like shoulder to shoulder. I have proximity to, I can get eyeball time with. We can, I think having fun too is really important, like with people that you're leading with because the pressure is there. Um, you got to be able to like laugh with each other and celebrate life together. Um, and then, so on that like furthest rung out of a concentric circle rung, I guess if it's a circle, it's a ring. We're not, we're not walking up a ladder, but, uh, I think is some, is some people that you trust that are legit people who care about you, not just the role that you're in, um, that aren't emotionally attached to everything that you're doing. Like, so all of those people who are I'm in proximity to, we're all in summit. And so we are emotionally attached to this thing. And when you can have some people who aren't in it with you, but are alongside you from a distance, um, they can help you see, see blind spots in yourself. Where it's just like, man, why are you doing that? Like, well, we've, we've always done that that way. It's like, well, that's right. dumb. You're like, you're literally, that's like antithetical to the mission that you're trying to yeah. move forward. So, yeah, dude, people, I'm all for educating ourselves, like training. Like, you got to have some knowledge of whatever your field uh, you're working in is. Like, I mean, 
if you guys didn't know how to plug in a mic, it'd be a pretty weak podcast, right? But at the end of the day, it's the people, it's a, it's the net of the interconnected web of relationships with real people that are going to help this thing become, you know, become the vision you have. So when you moved into this role, hmm. you had a network kind of in place. Yeah. How can you, and how would you recommend others to look at that network and get advice from them, get their opinions on certain things, but how can you filter through what is true hmm. and what is good advice versus what is bad? Because even the smartest, wisest people will still be wrong sometimes. Yeah, for sure. So how can you filter through that? Oh man, a great question. Um, so, I mean, I believe that the, the scriptures, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. So if there is some wisdom that seems to be going in a different direction than the, the thread of wisdom that's woven throughout the narrative arc of scripture, um, that just dies right there. So like, if you came to me and you're like, Hey, there's this, just for example, I don't know why this just came to me, but you're like, Hey, there's this girl, she's smoking. She thinks you're really attractive and she wants to go buy you a drink. <laughs> like, it doesn't line up. Appreciate the appreciate the like looking out, but I'm good. So the Bible is the first filter, and if it if it doesn't hit that, then I I let it die. And then um, I it, I guess from there where I would go in regards to like uh, um, outside voices, um, I think you have to have as you're leading anything, you gotta have a clear vision of what you're trying to accomplish. And as best as you can in the moment, what are the truest things you know right now about that vision? Um, and if the wisdom that's coming in or the experiences that's coming in um, is diverting or, or muddying or clouding that vision, it doesn't get applied. It goes in what I call some, I just call it, I have a parking lot. <laughs> I call it the parking lot. It's a note on my phone. And so I try to type stuff down. And it's like, you know, I need to, the best idea could come from the least expected person or place. And so, I mean, I've got like sermon series ideas. Like one time I was on a family vacation and we were traveling and it was a billboard in the middle of nowhere. And it's just, so I'm just having eyes for that. But, and then I go back to it. And then if it doesn't sync up with the vision, the mission or the values, um, those are the filters through which. Uh, so like one of the values at Summit is, um, we believe like as Jesus followers, we're called to live into uh, relentless hospitality. We are supposed to be the most hospitable people on the face of the earth, even to someone that we would um, maybe recognize as an enemy to us. Like that we, then that's true of the character of Jesus. So if there's wisdom that is like um, tearing down that value, it doesn't get applied or an experience. So I go through you know, vision, mission, values. And that is kind of like outside of the Bible, those uh, secondary and third tier um, kind of like guardrails. Um, those are how I kind of filter through everything. And dude, I can't, if you ask anybody on staff how many times I go, hey, what do you think about this? I ask other people. It's like, you know, like if I'm just trying to, if I'm trying to do all that discerning on myself, um, I think that that, <laughs> That's actually it. And then I'm making all the decisions. That's called a, a cult or a dictatorship. And that's not what the church is called to be. And so um, it's a covenant community. And so there's a diversity of opinions, a diversity of perspectives. And 
trying to like squeeze that lemon of the diversity of perspectives and opinions to get to the, the gold, the juice, the juice in it. Um, that's another way that I do that. Hey, what do you think about this? And if I get a pattern of feedback that's like, that's dumb, then that's dumb. Uh, it sounds like from what you've said so far, what you originally felt was uh, in just not being prepared, not being ready for that position, uh, turned into one of your biggest strengths, mm. which is being able to pull from other people's opinions, yeah. filter through other people's judgment. And so now you have this network of wisdom that you're able to pull from, and it went from being a weakness of like, I may not be qualified for this job to, okay, how can I be, now you're, it's almost like you're the pinpoint, you're yeah. the tip of the iceberg of all this wisdom mm-hmm. that has been like just it's just like mm. like a treasure yeah. treasure chest yeah. of the church, yeah. right? And now you are uh, in a position where you are able to express that wisdom to the people. Mm. I think that's really interesting. And you said something earlier that I want to r- circle back to is okay. you had to redefine what failure meant to you. Mm. And so I was hoping to dissect that a little bit more about what you define failure as now, mm. um, and then also a step further on the other side, how you define success as well. well. Yeah. Well, I mean, the kind of the functional definition of failure to me was my life. Uh, like at that, like my past, I, I, I was a friend of this world, like, and I drank deeply of every cultural value that existed out there. And so um, I wound up, you know, a drug addict, homeless, uh, living in a car um, in this city. And um, so my framework for failure was that, that, and that was a place that I was afraid to ever go back to. Um, and, uh, and so when I was kind of reestablishing like, man, what is failure? Um, failure to me is making a mistake and refusing to acknowledge that I made a mistake. So that like that sense of pride, um, and that can be, that refusal, refusal to acknowledge that I've made a mistake, it could be in diminishing it. So if you and me had a business deal set up and I shorted you a couple grand, um, it's just like breezing past that is still a re- refusal to acknowledge the mistake. And it's just like, ah, oh, Gabe's doing well, he'll figure it out. Like, it's just a couple grand, it's no big deal. It's like, no, like that is, that is refusing to acknowledge that mistake and so as so as it i am able to make it right um so um yeah that's how i define failure now is like uh a, 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 it's almost like a willingness to to um not acknowledge that i've made a mistake um and that could be something simple it's like maybe with one of my daughters you know i was sharp with my words and i could see that it cut her and refusing to go back and say, Hey, I'm sorry that I spoke to you that way. Like I, that's not the dad that I want to be. And that can be as small as, you know, seemingly small as a me kind of like lashing out at my daughter or as big as, you know, whatever it's short someone on a business deal or just lying and, you know, like trying to make something happen. Um, and so success to me now is faithfulness. Um, was I like, even right now in this podcast, like the thing I prayed in the car before I walked in here was like, Lord, just give me wisdom, um, help me be faithful and support what it is that these guys are trying to do through this, uh, this medium. And so, um, I think when I, everybody defines success and failure uniquely to them. And I understand that, but for me at the, the, you know, the, the chief end of my faith, this, this faith in Jesus, 
um, is to stand before him and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So to me, then, if that's like the, the highest goal of my faith, um, is to look, you know, look God in the eyes who willingly died on a cross for me and him be able to say, you weren't, hey, way to go be successful out there, Grant, out of babe. Like, well, no, it's like you were faithful with what was in front of you and faithfulness uh, to Jesus ultimately. So whether it's my marriage, whether it's a, a deep friendship that I've had for decades or someone that I've just recently met, um, uh, am I faithful to that relationship? Um, am I faithful to love that person and help draw the best out of them and encourage them? I mean, I think everybody needs encouragement and also challenge. Like, uh, you know, we're humans. We need high challenge, and it's amazing what we rise to when we get that. So, yeah, to me, I know it's a simple answer, but success is faithfulness at the end of the day. Do you think failure is necessary or at the very least a large contributor to people's magnitude of success in mm. life. Yeah. Um, it seems like everyone who has a very powerful success story at some point in their life had grave failure or yeah. uh, like trauma or mm -hmm. something very difficult that they had to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't know, there's something, there's something to be said about that, like, battle-tested, I've been through some fire. I've, I mean, every human being on the face of the earth is going to experience suffering, and it's scalable. It's on a spectrum. It's, it's, it could be a phone call one of us get today that someone we love dearly just tragically passed away. That's a form of suffering that we're going we're gonna to navigate, and you could look at that as failure. I mean, I think death is failure, and... Um, so yeah, I think, I think failure can be, it can be a straight jacket that gets us stuck or it can be, um, something that is a catalyst for us to grow. And like, even just, you know, not to be morbid, but on like, I mean, one of the three of us at this table is going to die first and it would affect all three of us. And there's going to be, there's going to need to be a season of grieving and lamenting and mourning that. Um, that brother, um, that friend, that coworker. And there's also going to be, um, not in a trite way, like we just move forward and leave it behind us, but we move forward in that suffering. We move forward in that pain. And um, so, yeah, I would agree with that kind of train of thought that failure is necessary um, and mistakes are necessary. But I think it's, I would maybe rephrase it as like, failure and mistakes are a part of life and how you steward that, how you respond to that. It, you know, cause we've all heard of someone who fails and they don't respond well to it. It doesn't turn into something that helps them grow, uh, grow or mature or be able to help someone further down the road who's going through something that they went through. Um, so yeah, I think they can be unbelievable catalysts for growth and um, in a person. What does it take to use that as a catalyst for growth, growth rather than let it put you in a straitjacket? What does the difference look like with how you respond to it? Hmm. I think, dude, uh, I'm just going to say the truest things I know, so sift through it if it's just junk. I think Americans, and when I say that, I know, I know there's like the broad generality, but like this like American spirit, this cultural thing is like, 
we really struggle to embrace our limitations as human beings. Like there is just this quest to live forever and just win, 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 win and dominate and dominate. And I think embracing your limitations in failure is recognizing that you aren't God. <laughs> like I'm not God, man. And uh, I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to struggle and I'm going to go through hardships. Um, so I would say that that's a component of that is embracing your limitations. You are a finite human being, man. And all three of us are sitting here reliant on involuntary body functions to keep us alive today. You aren't making your heartbeat. You're not telling your lungs to breathe in. Like there's something beyond us. Um, and then I think, dude, I struggle with, and I, I think when I fail is we can just get so there's, we can blind ourselves with denial. So like, I, just for example, like, I mean, one of my brothers, uh, my younger brother passed away tragically. And I remember like standing in the, in the hospital room with him as he's passing away. And, uh, just being like, this isn't real. This isn't real, man. This isn't real. And as a natural, normative human response to intense trauma. Um, and then there was a moment of like accepting reality. This is what is really happening right now. And I'm not going to lie to you, the disorientation of that. And obviously I'm talking on one end of the spectrum. Like it could be as small as like a speeding ticket. This isn't happening. This is, I, I didn't speed. I wasn't speeding. It's like, dude, you're good. We were going like 30 miles over the speed limit. You were speeding. Okay. I accept that, you know? And I think there's just this like component to like accept reality, like ground yourself in reality. And, you know, our imagination is one of the most powerful tools that we possess as a human being, you know, like in our, in our consciousness is that we can imagine things. Like, I mean, right now, the three of us, if I'm like, hey, imagine we're doing this like on a beach in Mexico and there's not five inches of snow on the ground right now. Like we can imagine that. Um, and it, so it, as much of a strength as it can be, it can be a shadow. And we can imagine unreality to the point where we are living some sort of fantasy. Like I'm not Michael Jordan. I like to think that I'm really smooth with a basketball in my hand, but when someone shows me a video of me playing basketball, it don't look like LeBron or Michael Jordan or anybody. It's like, wow, you, you do not have a left hand. You can't dribble with your left hand. <laughs> so I think, um, I think those two things are really important. Embracing your limitations. Um, you know, average life expectancy of a, of a U.S. citizen, it ticks up every year just because of like, healthcare and advances in science and stuff. And that's a beautiful thing, you know, like, but I think the average life expectancy of a, a male is like 78 years. So I turned 36 at the end of this month and I'm like, Oh, if I, I gotta have a like perspective, I think perspective is really important for how you respond to failure, brace your limitations and then ground yourself in reality. That's, that's some good stuff in there. So you have, pretty much dedicated your life to your faith, mm. which is very admirable. Um, a lot of people who are going to end up listening to this podcast, you know, are, are not Christians. Mm -hmm. So how can you, how is it that you can have such strong faith that something is true, that not only can you dedicate your life to it, but you can raise your kids in that light. Mm. You can lead the souls of, you know, a congregation, I don't know how, how big some it is, maybe, I don't know, maybe 500 people, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Uh, how can you, how can you have such strong faith that what 
you believe to be true is true, uh, that you can step into a role like that. Hmm. Man, uh, I am, I am a skeptic at nature. I'm like just through and through and that it is still there at times. And so for me to sit here and tell you that I never question or I never doubt or I never uh, wonder, like, I mean, I've had the thought of like, man, is this just a really compelling story that has traveled across cultures for centuries and wound its way up to Spokane, Washington at the point in time that I was alive and I... I was weak and broken and I needed something to believe in that was greater than myself. Um, I, I wrestle, dude. Like I, I appreciate the compliment uh, and the perspective of you saying like as a man of deep faith, um, it means a lot. But I, I also don't want to get it twisted and, and portray something that isn't true of me. Um, at the same time, I, I mentioned that I have like drank deeply the, of the world and the world's value systems and things of that nature. And I have come to a place where um, I haven't, I haven't, I've searched and I haven't come across a more compelling narrative. I haven't come across a more compelling narrative that um, the creator, like if you think of it, like in terms of a, an artist painting on a canvas, like in, you know, an art, just imagine an artist painting uh, this masterpiece and they finish it and they step back and there's this um, small like dot of mold in the center and it starts to move throughout the painting and that painter that you know we're all watching like well what's going to happen and and that painter steps into the canvas and as that, that dark spot of mold and decay is starting to move throughout the entire painting and just corrupt everything that that, that painter did, uh, all of that uh, mold and decay and death localized over the heart of the artist in the painting. And um, to the point where the painting started to come back <laughs> and that the creator, the artist, took upon himself the thing that was destroying his creation and that the, the painter didn't step back out of the canvas once the mold was consumed and the decay and the death were done away with, but chose to remain within the fabric of his creation. Like that's the story of the gospel, that sin entered the world, God's creation, and he didn't sit back and watch it just continue to destroy, but he willingly sent his son Jesus to sacrificially die a death on a cross and absorb the sin of the world in himself and, and, and restore creation, restore human beings and image bearers uh, to, to his intended purpose. I haven't come across a more compelling narrative. And if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, if this Christian faith thing is just a sham, it's just a story uh, that was compelling to me, and the result of that was that I tried to live a more loving, a more kind, a more generous, a more servant-oriented, supportive life, and I die. So be it. Um, but if, if it is true, which I do believe it is true, if it is true, then that means that I am living into the truth. And I think so much of our culture gets wrapped up in who's right and who's wrong. And 
And I want to know what is true right now. Um, and I have come to a place with what, with what a lot of times feels like a mustard sized seed of faith because of my skepticism and my doubt and my questioning. Um, and I've seen the impact of that mustard sized seed of faith in Jesus have this unbelievable impact, not just on my life, but on the lives of other people around me. And, uh, so yeah, man, I guess that is it. I just haven't found a more compelling story and uh, a story that I'm more convinced of is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what empowers me to live that out and share that with other people. And, um, and it's not just wrapped up in my, my own experience. I've seen it in other people's lives to be true as well. You know, I think that like, oh, well, this is, you know, we, we, I think your experience is important as an individual, but, um, my experience isn't ultimate. It's not ultimate truth. Um, and when we live in such a individualistic culture that if, if what is true is everyone's individual experience, then nothing is true in my opinion. So it kind of like eats at itself. Um, but I have observed in others, I have like, I am a witness to this gospel of Jesus transforming other people's lives as well. People much different than, different than me too. Um, and I just think a story that has moved across cultures and times and still carries the same profound transformative nature to it. I'm like, I think that's the truth. Yeah. That's interesting. We've had conversations about that same thing that Mm. we could be completely wrong about the Christian faith. And the reality is that we will never know because you can die and it's just a, if we're wrong on consciousness, it's just a black, it's a void game over. We'll have no idea. Yeah. But if we live our lives to such that that is the end mm. and it turns out we're wrong at that point, yeah. then we face a God that we betrayed. Yeah. Yeah. That's a far scarier thought than yeah. there's a, having no idea. There's a train of thought. I think his name is uh, Blaise Pascal. He's like, I can't remember yeah. what nationality he was, but he's like a mathematician. And mm-hmm. like, like back in the day when it was like, I'm a mathematician, a scientist, a railroad worker, like all this stuff. And that like Pascal's gamble is one of those like trains of thought or this really cool conversation. If you ever want to just kind of read more about like, why, why would I believe this? He, he articulates it pretty well. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of shift gears here a little bit. Yeah. There's been a lot of discussions, I think in culture, but in just my life in general, mm-hmm. um, I'm in a lot of circles through just work with a lot of non-believers and mm. Christians. And I've had the opportunity to have really good conversations, which is super cool. Mm. I never thought that I would be in that area, in that workplace, but uh, a lot of them bring up the financial responsibility of the church mm. and what that should look like and could look like. Yeah, And so I mm. ask almost on their behalf um, to someone I trust. Yeah, And... For example, one of the questions was the Super Bowl ad, huh. if you're familiar. I, I, full disclosure, I was playing Barbies with my daughter because I got Good. bored. So priorities. I, yeah. I didn't watch the but Super Bowl either. Like but the, he cares or he believes like or something yeah. of that nature. Yeah, $100 million commercial. Hmm. And a point one of my coworkers brought up is, yeah, you're spending $100 million on a commercial. Where? Yeah. Where could that money have gone to better use? It seems like if you believe everything you say you believe, yeah. What could a hundred million dollars do in just our country? Yeah. For just loving other people. And 
Um, some people, I was having a discussion from Summit yesterday. Yeah. Um, it's like, okay, what does it look like to steward mm. church finance as well with like a sound system and a lighting yep. system? I think those are great questions. And it's like, okay, is it okay to have a super expensive sound system and lighting mm-hmm. system? You know, if we have the budget for it, but, you know, could at least some of that money go to mm. furthering the gospel in a more productive way, if you will? Yeah. No, I think it, a, a, a good friend of mine says that uh, questions prick the conscience and accusations harden the soul or the will or the mind. And I think, I think we should always ask those kinds of questions. So whether, you know, if you're in a church service and it's like, man, something feels off or watching the Super Bowl and it's like, man, that's like a prime time spot. And that's a lot of money to get that commercial out there. So I am all for asking those questions. I think where it gets kind of wonky and where it doesn't lead to, um, it doesn't lead to the intent, the intent of it is when it's accusatory. It's like, oh, you're doing this for this. It's like, uh-huh. let's ask the question. So with that, um, something, I mean, dude, I have sat, I remember one time, it was the first time I got invited to McCarthy Athletic Center and it was like right after it got built. And it's just like, I don't even know how many, how much money it was. I looked it up at the time and in the corner of that huge, it's a Jesuit school. And it's like over there, it says a little tiny cross. And I'm like, like this, this is a temple for the worship of basketball, not the worship of Jesus at a Jesuit school. And so, and you know, I've asked the same questions in the church and now I'm in a position where I'm making decisions Mm -hmm. in that seat. So I, and again, to just speak to the skeptic and the questioner and I'm like, man, what's going on? Like, I know that struggle a lot. And, um, I think you, how do the church stewards finances to get to the heart of your question? I'm not trying to dodge it. Um, I think it, it rests in, well, what is, uh, a Jesus hermeneutic, like centered teaching around money. And, um, Jesus had a lot to say about money. He, he did. And it's, it's a, probably one of the most, one of the, not most important, it is a very important conversation and topic for us to consider. And in that, um, you're trying to make the best decisions you can with the truest things you know, grounded in, a, 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 in the teachings of Jesus as it pertains to money. And so... Uh, a lot of times when it comes to the, those sorts of questions and how I function is, I mean, I, I am open to any sort of criticism because I know I'm not doing a perfect job of managing the finances of the church. And uh, I think I am doing a faithful job and not just me, but um, there's myself, an executive team, and then a financial council. So every dollar that is spent is ran through the lens of, 12 different people. And I just straight up, they're not yes women and yes men. They are, they will be like, nope, that's not, I'm like, well, I want to do that. I want to buy that. I, we need the moving lights or the whatever, you know? And so I think having um, a group back to the people around you is like, mm-hmm. uh, how do we steward this money in a way that at the end of the day, we could say we were prayerful it was biblically sound decision making, and um, and we made the best decisions. We can say, "Hey, this this seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit," and we're willing to admit when we're wrong, 
and ground ourselves in reality and reroute if need be. Could the hundred plus million dollars on the Super Bowl ad have been spent differently? Absolutely. I also think there's probably uh, a variety of facts that went into making that decision that I don't know. So it's really easy for me to sit here and go like, that's stupid. And I've done that at church. I mean, I, I wound up deleting Instagram for a personal conviction. I uh, just consuming a lot of my time in my, I was, I struggling a lot with envy. I'm looking at what everybody else is doing that I'm not. And I, I want to why can't that be me? And I, I was following the, preacher sneakers for a while and if you're not familiar with that it's yeah have you guys seen that no oh like it just is this account that literally just uh posts um the posts are just of preachers wearing ungodly expensive sneakers <laughs> and it's just like like this dude's preaching in some coach loafers or she's preaching in these like red bottoms and it's just like well like that's a lot of money on someone who's like they're profiting from the preaching of the good news. And uh, that was that's problematic to some degree, I think. Um, but I don't know. It, it's a great conversation to have, I think. And the question should be asked. And if you're part of a church and you have a question, I think you should ask the question and be like, hey, how are we spending our money? And I, I remember what it was like to work my tail off when I was like working at a bank or when I was bussing tables or waiting on tables and I'm giving some of my money to this this church and trusting that they're going to make good decisions to serve the city of Spokane and, and do the work of the gospel. And um, I was able to have some really good conversations with people. And I'm going to tell you as a guy who, I mean, I get my paycheck uh, from you guys and other women and men generously contributing to Summit. And, and it sometimes feels weird. I'm like, should I, I'm like, I don't know what to do. And so you do the best you can. You, you nail down on like, I mean, pay scales. How do you figure out a pay scale for a pastor? Like should, and I, should I be bivocational? Maybe I, I may, and I'm not opposed to that, but um, you're making the, the best decisions with the truest things, you know, in the moment. And this is what I've learned personally. When I have questions, I have to be, I have to be, cognizant that there's probably some information that I don't have that went into making that decision. And so I'll ask questions that will help me, help me better understand how you came to this conclusion and how you chose to spend the money that way. So, yeah. And then with that same light on personal financing, Mm. uh, so it sounds like the overarching theme is to be as faithful as you possibly can with Mm. the truest information, you know, uh, with scripture as kind of your northern star. Yeah. And would you say that's just the exact same as personal financing? Mm. Um, or is there different qualifications? Because obviously, you know, managing other people's money versus managing your own. Yeah. There's a difference there. Yeah. So, I mean, just uh, if I if you want me to go, if I misunderstood you, I'm going the wrong direction, pull me back, okay? Got it. Uh, yeah. So something that's weird for, that's been weird for me is my wife and I, we give to Summit. So I get a paycheck from Summit, and then I turn around and give a percentage of that paycheck back to Summit in a separate transaction. And I've literally thought, like, why don't I just like have them reduce that and go there? And it's because there's something to be said for my wife and I to say, this is what we earned, and this is what we are doing with what we've earned. 
And so um, we do. And it's been, it's, it's odd to me. And I don't know if you kind of think that's odd too, but it is just a weird position. Like, yeah. it's like, here's that. Okay, here's that back. And um, I don't personally think that there's this massive, it's all God's. So whether it's personal or business finance, it is me saying this is what God has provided. And at Summit, every penny has been provided through a person. So the people are the vehicle through which the heart of generosity and that resource, that financial resource shows up. I mean, they're like, I'll just tell you, one day I felt prompted to pray for a specific amount of money for God to provide to Summit. And it, and it was the most insane thing because in the, the, within a week, a check showed up for, I mean, I'm not going to be veiled. It was 20 grand. I don't know why. I was sitting there, I was praying. I was like, God, would you, I think you want me to ask that you would provide $20,000 worth of resource. And you should have saw the look on the, the front office administrator. And I told the whole staff that. And I said, I don't know what we're going to do with it. I just, this is what I sense. And so we prayed and then that showed up and we were all like, what is going on? Like, and we're all like, who did it in the room? Or and it's like, well, none of us can afford to do that in the room or anything. So we all work at a church, but I don't think there's much of a difference. It's all God's. And so how you steward it is, um, it is, whether it's personal or professional, it's grounded in the teachings of Jesus as a follower of Jesus. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't heap that, that responsibility on anyone who doesn't believe yeah. that. So I want to take this just a little bit further. Yeah, go for it. So obviously there's not like a line. Mm. It's like, oh, you can buy a car up to like $50,000. Mm. Past that, it's like too far. Yeah, too yeah. Too nice. So how do we go about actually mm. deciding what is a good purchase or not? Because I know there's probably people in the church who make a lot of money compared yeah. to like me or mm. anyone else in the church. Mm. How should both ends of the spectrum go about trying to steward their finances well and what that looks like? Yeah. And I feel like it would be harder for people with more money just because it is more temptation. Hmm. I can afford the $150,000 sports car if yeah. I want or a huge house that I don't need all the space for yeah. or you know, any number of things. But how, even if they give half to the church, it's like how do you steward that well hmm. to, yeah, just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, so two, two, the two ways I, just to begin, to begin the train of thought, like, you know, like if you, if you, there was like taking a vow of poverty was like pretty normative 1800 years ago in the Christian faith. Like it was like, Hey, you are taking a vow of poverty. So you would never even be put into that position. Right? You like, would never... You're not even getting close to have to make those sorts of decisions. And so I, I really honor like it, that, that in our tradition, it's, it's a cool thing and I get it. Um, and then, you know, like over the last 2000 plus years of, of, um, of church tradition, uh, the, we, we've kind of heard them framed as like the seven deadly sins and, historically speaking, they were called like the capital vices. So like the seven deadly sins title is relatively new. But, and so I think it started with like a desert father of Agrius, and then he was discipling this guy named Cassius and Cassius, it kind of moved to Thomas Aquinas and that idea of capital vices. And in all of that, greed was one of those things. Yeah. 
And I mean, just straight up, like whether you, you could be a believer in the church or you could be like militantly opposed to Jesus and, and greed is an idol in our culture and it's present in the church and it's not. And so I think the core question that is helpful in like, man, how do I, how much is, is the car too much is asking yourself, why do I, why, well, why do I want to buy this? And, and being honest and then asking other people, Hey, like who know you? Like, I mean, if you got, if he came, if Gabe came to you and was like, Hey, I'm thinking about buying this. Like, if you go, why do you want to buy that? That's one thing. And then if you, if you allow him to speak to, here's why I think you want to buy it. And then are you willing to sit there and hear some tough stuff? Like you want to drive around in that car because you want people to look at you a certain way. Um, so I think asking the question of why and the implications of greed, not just the action of it, but the thinking. And I mean, dude, there's 2000 years of church history and literature that's been written on greed that is really saucy stuff and worthy of our consideration today if you're trying to follow Jesus. So that when you get to those decisions, man, like what is this, what is an appropriate decision? What is a God honoring decision in how we steward our finances? I mean, I'm not gonna lie to you, I like nice stuff. Like, and I think for us to like be like, oh no, I'll just, I'll always buy the not nice thing. Um, but why do I wanna buy the Titleist golf driver? Why do, why do I wanna buy mm-hmm. the, the Pro V1s? Like, is there something behind that? And willing to ask those questions. And I think it was, I can't remember where I came across it, but so, uh, like a value of my wife and I's is that we are, we make an effort to make the more modest purchase. So I might want the $150 Air Max, Nike Air Maxes. I don't need those. And then I guess. So like, what's the modest purchase? What's the more modest purchase for the good that we're considering buying? And so that requires a little bit of effort. And I'm not going to lie to you, it stings a little bit when I buy, when I got, I mean, I got a Mizuno driver, not a Titleist driver. I drive past, and by the way, I'm talking golf if you're not familiar. Dude, we're big golf guys. Okay. So, we're... so like in my, like, like there's just something about that name. And I still, when I see a Titleist driver in someone's bag, there's a little bit of like, oh man, I could probably drive the ball further or I would just look cooler if I had that driver. But I genuinely tried to make the more modest purchase. Um, and then at the, the and then to a, a degree further is, are you willing to part with what you purchased? Or are you so attached to it that your identity is wrapped up in it? So like, if God prompted my wife and I to sell the house that we've worked really hard to save money and pay for. And it was a genuine thing where we like sat in prayer and fasting and had conversations with wise counsel. And it was like, are we unwilling to get rid of the thing that we worked really hard to purchase or are we willing to, to walk away from it? And I would say even a step further, are you willing to give it away? I, there's a there's a friend of mine, it's a pastor buddy of mine, and he like regularly. It's like one of his values is if someone compliments him on something he's wearing and they're around the same size as he is, he'll be like, "Do you want it?" And it's so funny to watch people get really uncomfortable. Yeah. It's like that's a really cool watch. 
which I see your, I'm not doing this. So you'll give me your watch, but (laughs) but that's like, it's something that he does and it's admirable to me and he's genuine in it. It's like, I've literally watched him give someone his coat in like the dead of winter because they took him up on it. They're like, yeah, that is a nice Patagonia coach. I would love that. Here you go. So like how, how tight is your grip on the material things that you are in possession of? Like, do you, are you in possession of it or is it in possession of you? And then I think it's going to be unique to each person. I don't think there's this like blanket wisdom on like, and when we do, you shouldn't buy the $50,000 car. Maybe you should. Yeah. Maybe you should buy the more expensive car. Um, But I do think there's something to be said about um, where your true riches lie. Yeah. that's a very helpful way to think about it. Yeah. And one common theme I'm I'm seeing from you is this idea of having a network that you're able to bounce ideas off of mm-hmm. and get their opinion. And like we talked about earlier, it's like you're able to move through life with a lot more confidence, having like being able to pull from so many other people's experience. Mm-hmm. So in that light, I want to ask you for myself, but also for people listening, what you think is the meaning of life and what you think we should be pursuing. Holy cow. The meaning of life. Yeah, no pressure though. <laughs> no, I On mean the spot. Meaning of life. You know, uh it, there's this like a catechism. It's called the Westminster Catechism and they say that the, you know, in their framework of thinking that the chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. And um that, that resonates with me in a couple areas. Um, uh, and I think that, I, I think the word enjoy is helpful because the way that I perceived Christianity or following Jesus prior to actually beginning to practice the way of Jesus was I got to give all this stuff up, man, all this stuff that I love, like whether it was, you know, materialism or, uh, you know, just self-obsession and being like consumed with myself. And there are, there are things that you, when you choose to follow Jesus, that you walk away from. And in the beginning, it looks like Mount Everest. It's like, dude, I can't, I can't walk away from that. It's like everything. And it happens at a varied pace for each person. And it's not always like a, an amount of linear time that goes by. It's like, hey, give it three years and you'll see that that Mount Everest thing that you valued that you're walking away from um, is just something that was a molehill. It was nothing, man. And, and the life on the other side of those things that you've, you've given up in pursuit of the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God, um, it's, it's tough. So it's, it's more about like how far he's brought you and it's not so much like, oh, it's length of time. Hey, get 10 years of following Jesus under your belt and then you'll get it. Like, um, I have a friend who, I mean, from an from a American cultural standpoint, he had everything. Amazing house, unbelievable job, just money in the bank, uh, wife, kids. Like, he was flush. And he woke up one day and he couldn't get out of bed because he was so just empty. And I, I've watched him over the last, uh, I've watched him like over the last five years walk away from a lot of things that the world says, man, that's it. And I've watched him learn 
that like relationship with Jesus is more than enough. And uh, he don't make as much money as he used to. Uh, he don't get to wear as dope as suits as he used to. Uh, but he, he is so much more at peace with who he is um, and has a greater sense of purpose and meaning in life um, as some of those those tentacles of the world have kind of released. So, yeah, I mean, the, the meaning of life to me, I think, is knowing God and being known by him. And the variables that go into play, like what you do for work or what you have from a materialism standpoint or um, how popular you are or how many likes or views, whatever you're putting out there gets, those things are, they're, they are of value, but they aren't of ultimate value because they could all be taken away and you still know the beloved of your soul and are known by him. And like that, you take it all. Um, so yeah, the meaning of life to me is knowing Jesus and being known by him. Yeah. Cool. Incredible. We'll wrap this up. Yeah. Let's get out of here. Mm, yeah. Um, but yeah, dude, just encouragement. Thanks you. F- thanks for all your words. Yeah, man. That's, that's super cool to hear. Mm. I love going into a church where I can't find parking. And I think that says something about you <laughs> as uh, just the lead pastor there. Mm. And I think your humility and your humbleness mm. speaks to a lot of people. Yeah. And that's so rare in a church nowadays. So yeah, yeah. that means just, a lot. I genuinely, I mean it. I appreciate you saying that. And thanks for letting me be a part of it. I hope it was helpful to for someone or encouraging. I, it was helpful to just get to think through what I think about things and share them with you. So. Yeah, that means a lot. Has a lot of value to yeah. me, and I know Gabe, and yeah. hopefully a lot of other people. Yeah, no, it's cool we to really see like uh, what's happening at Summit, and I'm grateful for our church. And I, not to diminish your compliment, but I, I get to play a small part of what God is doing in that community, and it's a, it's an entire community of people that make that church a, a healthy thing. So I, I don't, I just want to be faithful to serve. Um, that community and keep pursuing Jesus and see what God wants to do in and through that. Where can people learn more about Summit and get involved there? Oh, uh, I mean, we have a website and you can swing by and check it out. Uh, on We gather on Sundays and uh, for communal worship. And uh, you can also just like, there's a connect card on the website, a digital one. Uh, or you can go old school and come get one at the office and fill it out with a pen. But yeah, you can fill that out and just kind of your name, your information, and someone in our church will reach out to you to get a cup of coffee with you or whatever, kombucha, whatever, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, thanks Perfect. again for your time. Yeah, yeah I really appreciate it. Yeah. And we learned a lot. Absolutely. Very cool.